So I still remember it vividly. In March of 2014, a group of men from our church went down to Liberty University for a men's conference. At the time, it was called the Wildfire Conference. It's now called Ignite. And this was the first time that we sent a group of men down to the conference. And on the first evening, um, after we heard uh, some different speakers talk, uh, pastor and author Max Lucado shared a message from a book that he recently had written. And there was a line that he had said um, often in his message, and it was up on the screen, and uh, he repeated it, and it, it kind of stayed with me. I, I think his intended point was received. Uh, and I've used it from time to time, as I have spent time counseling um, some of you in difficult situations that you have gone through. And it goes like this. You'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. Don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you'll get through this. And so his message was built around this thought that as believers, life isn't promised to be easy, but God promises to be faithful. And it's a simple reminder that reveals really this profound truth that God uses our trials and tribulations that we go through in this life for his greater good and for um, his glory. But it's not going to come easy, right? Trials that we go through in life are called trials for a reason. And I think that's where we get tripped up sometimes in the midst of the trials that we face. And we often live as if God is going to come down and rescue us from the trials of life. We cry out to God and we ask him for his rescuing grace. But God doesn't promise that he will rescue us from trials. He promises to be with us and use it for our greater good and his glory. God doesn't promise to come down and kind of like the, the crane game, right? Picking the stuffed animal out of, you know, like he's just going to come down, pick us up out of it and, and put our feet on comfortable safe ground. And it's unfortunate that many believers spend the bulk of their time either running from trials and seeking ease and comfort rather than embracing trials that we face in life. Or they try to posture their, their lives in such a way that they don't even want the idea that trials can even be a thought for what they're going through in life. We've talked about this before, but there's a whole movement in uh, the Christian church that is focused around a prosperity gospel message that God promises everything will be great and wonderful and easy and God will just bless and bless and bless according to what we think is a blessing and everything will be happy and good and there will be no problems or pain or suffering. And I, and I just want to say at this point, like, if that's what we want from God, that is such a shallow view of what he can provide. 
It's a lie from Satan himself that to be a Christian means that life will always be easy. Jesus taught his disciples, in fact, the opposite. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. In these final chapters of John's gospel, that is really focusing on really Jesus' final days with his disciples, he's imparting final words of wisdom, and he says to his disciples, In me you have peace. In the world, there's trouble. But remember, Jesus, and this is before the cross, right? This is before his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus is telling his disciples then the reality that we know this side of the cross and resurrection, that he has overcome the world. We have a Savior that has overcome. We have a Savior that has overcome. Are you with me? He's overcome. In fact, Paul says that we are overwhelmingly conquerors in him. Jesus has overcome the world and we have overcome in Christ. He said, then Jesus said, and this is a chapter earlier, but to think that we go through this life without trouble, trials, suffering, hardship, pain, and all sorts of difficulty is wrong. He said this to his disciples in John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But did you notice what he says there? If they persecuted me, they're going to what? persecute you. But if you're living in such a way that you want to avoid trials and tribulations and persecutions and sufferings and pain and all the things that a broken world brings, if you're living hiding behind the, this promise that God is going to rescue you every time, you're going to miss out on really the blessing that Jesus gives that, hey, they persecuted me and I've overcome And remember, you're not greater than me, so they're going to persecute you. But in me, you overcome. And if you miss that, you're missing out on one of God's most profound works that he does in our lives this side of heaven. And so we need to understand the place and the purpose that trials have in our lives. The very fact that you have air in your lungs this morning, and the very fact that you're living and you believe in Jesus means you are going to have trials in your life. You are going to go through tribulations. You will face suffering. That is the way, the road of a disciple. It is not an easy road. But it is one that promises God's presence. Church, if you came to Jesus thinking he's going to make all of your problems go away, that he's going to make your life easy, comfortable, and that you will escape trouble in this life, you came to the wrong Jesus. Jesus does not promise that, but he promises his presence. 1 Peter 1 challenges us to consider the great purpose of our trials. 
that there is purpose in our trials. Some of you are going through a season of your life right now that maybe you haven't shared with many people at all. And, and you're here this morning, and, and I know what it's like, right? You come into a setting like this, and you put the smile on your face, and, you, and, and outwardly you think, okay, I'm going to hold it together for the next hour and a half. But inside, you're a mess. And some of you have just come through a trial. And you've went through a period of suffering. And you might be tempted to wonder, God, what on earth are you doing? Why did you permit this? God, what is the process of what you were doing in my life through this? Now, this isn't just a New Testament concept. Right from the outset, God's people have been marked with suffering. I mean, if you look at the book of Genesis, it ends with a man named Joseph. How'd that guy do? His whole life from a young teenager until he was captured out of prison and remembered that he could interpret dreams was marked by suffering and trials. Somehow in, in the same season, but the book is found later in the Old Testament, we have the man Job. How did that guy do? Right? His life was marked with suffering. Terrible trials. Persecutions. And in each case, they were permitted by a loving God. God said, okay. He didn't stop the, the trials from coming. He didn't intervene and provide a plan B or an exit strategy. He permitted those trials to occur so that those men would be refined as they walked with him. Before we unpack the, the wonderful gift of the purpose of our trials in 1 Peter 1, I want to take a minute and explain the kind of suffering that God promises to work through because I think we can get mixed up on this kind of suffering. Um, God is calling us to embrace the trials and tribulations that we face in this life because they are instruments that are permitted by God to refine us. But make no mistake about it. The suffering that we go through in this life that is a result of sinful choices that we commit, those kinds of trials and tribulations, we're not called to embrace the greater glory in those things. Do you hear what I'm saying? That if we're responsible in our sin of making terrible choices that bring brokenness and fractures to our relationships and, 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 and what's going on around us in the world that we live in, there's no greater good in that. In fact, if you turn, it might be a page later, or it's in the same book in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll unpack it later, but in 1 Peter 2 verse 20, this is what Peter says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? 
But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. You see what Peter's saying? If you sin and suffer, what's good about that? There is no reward in that. And so I bring this up because there might be some of you this morning that are dealing with circumstances in your life that are a result of your own doing. And maybe you want God to come in and rescue you from you. Like, seriously. You've just made a mess of your life. And you want God to put all the pieces together without any effort on your part. And you know what I mean by effort? I'm going to explain it this way. If you've made a mess of your life based on sin in your life, the only way to find relief from the suffering that comes from that kind of sin is to ask God for forgiveness and repent. That's the only way. Acknowledge you have sinned against Him. In some situations, acknowledge that you've sinned against other people. Confess it to them. Turn towards God and receive His grace. Do you understand why we're making this distinction? Because I think sometimes we can be tricked into thinking that the trials that we are going through life, the frustrations, the, the, the difficulties... Are, are these tools and instruments that God's going to use to create a greater faith in us, and yet we're responsible for it. And we have to own it, and we have to go to Him and seek His restoration. But the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter 1 has more to do with the trials and tribulations that exist from the outside that press into our lives. Because we are believers in Jesus Christ. Now this should be an obvious thought for us. I mean, First Peter 1 Peter 1.1 says that we're not home yet. We've been talking about this the, the last few weeks that we've been in First Peter, but it's the prevailing theme, right? In Peter's eyes, who are we? We are strangers and aliens. We don't belong here. We live in a foreign world. This is not our home. There is an adversary that is living in this world. His name is the devil. And he has schemes. He has plans. He throws the playbook at us because he wants to disrupt and devour and destroy those who belong to Jesus Christ. And so what he's doing in a, in a world that we don't belong in is he's constantly accusing and tripping us up and he's constantly trying to make this life difficult. Why? Because if he can make this life difficult enough that we begin to doubt in the goodness of God, he wins. But God promises that in the midst of those trials, God is permitting those things to happen so that our lives would be stronger in the faith as we walk with Him. You need to understand, if you're a pilgrim this morning, you're on a journey to a different home. 
you're in a foreign territory. To face trials and suffering in this life due to our faith in Jesus is the normal experience of aliens who are not home yet. It's the normal experience. It's not abnormal. We, we hide behind the, the reality that we're facing trials and suffering. Now, I'm not saying that we, you know, grab a wireless mic and we go around and say, okay, let's all share our t- terrible trials and sufferings and just go around the room one by one. But I think what we should understand is, listen, just appreciate who's here this morning. We're all going through trials in different various ways because we don't belong. And so you know what that should mean in us? Let's not be afraid to step out of our comfort zone and say, how can I pray for you? How can I encourage you with the goodness of Jesus Christ? And and what happens is we're so, we can be so afraid to share our trials because we think, oh gosh, I have a trial in my life that, and if I share that, they're going to think that I'm weak. Spoiler alert, you're all weak. I am too. I need a savior that can hold me up. That can direct my steps. That can promise good in the midst of my suffering. I need a savior who is a loving king. Who's going to stand by my side and hold me. When I don't think anything else, anyone else can come in and rescue. The Apostle Paul spoke of his personal experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as an apostle. And when you look at the book of 2 Corinthians itself, which I encourage you to do if you've never read it um, or it's been a while since you've read it, read it again with this thought. The, sec- that the book of 2 Corinthians offers one of the most personal looks at the Apostle Paul himself. It's very personal as Paul opens his heart to the church in Corinth about who he is in Christ. And this is Paul's experience as he walked with Jesus as an apostle, right? And we can think, oh, Paul, like, okay, like there's Jesus and yeah, big divide. And then there's like Paul and the apostles. But this was Paul's experience as a follower of Jesus in second Corinthians. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So here's the guy. His life was radically transformed right on the road to Damascus. He became a follower of Jesus after becoming a hater of Jesus. Jesus met him, changed his direction and said, now I want you and go tell others about me. And so Paul went around in the Roman world 
teaching people that they need to find life in Jesus Christ. And a lot of good things happen. But when you look at Paul's life in the book of Acts, what do you see also? A lot of trouble came with him. It was like wherever Paul went, there was trouble following. He was chased out of towns many times. He was beaten. They thought he died at one point. They beat him so bad and threw him out of the city. And they thought, that's it. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth, really probably a third letter that he had written to them that we call 2 Corinthians. And he says, listen, guys, I want you to understand there is no easy way for the disciple of Jesus Christ. God will permit us to be crushed to the point where it seems like there is no other option. Like, how are we going to get through this? What is the end game in this? You know what that's like, right? Do you ever go through a, a situation in your life? It just came out of nowhere. And it literally brought you to your knees. And it took all of the energy and joy and zest for life that you have right out of you. And you thought, oh my, what on earth is going on? And if those trials that are coming from the outside are afflicting you and crushing you, that's the normal Christian experience. It's basically welcome to the family. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I pray that we come to the text this morning embracing the trouble we face. And notice I say embrace it. I'm not saying look for it. Like, I don't want you to leave here today and say, okay, this is the normal experience. Trials, troubles, persecutions, tribulations. Okay, how can I manifest these things in my life? Don't worry. They're going to come. If you live as a child of God in a fallen world, trials will come. If you're hiding in a fallen world because you're afraid of what people might say or do or think about you. And you're trying to go through life escaping trials. And you're trying to go through life getting the spotlight, not off of you per se, but off of Christ in you. Then you're missing out on one of the greatest opportunities that God has to refine you as his child. This is what Peter's talking about this morning in 1 Peter. Let me read to you verses 6 through 9, and we're going to take a few minutes and unpack this thought of the purpose that trials have for us. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in his name. 
you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So Peter begins this thought by saying, in this you greatly rejoice. Now we just need to take a minute and we need to talk about the what is the in this. Because it's a connecting term. What he says in verse 6, he says in this, and then, you know, the thought is, okay, what, what are we in? Now, there's two thoughts specifically of what Peter is talking about. One of those thought is, thoughts is how he finished verse 5, talking about the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed, and specifically in the last time, our ultimate glorification, the inheritance that is ours, that there comes a point in time when we leave this earth, that we are presented before the Lord, glorified just as He is because of His sanctifying work on our behalf, and the old sin nature is done away with, and because of the pledge of the Holy Spirit, we are given an inheritance that is not stained, does not perish, does not... The moth doesn't come in and and eat it up and all those things. It could be talking about that. But I think generically speaking, it's more concerned in in what he says in verse 5 about salvation. The power of God through faith for salvation and salvation in its completed sense. Like past, present and future. It's in this our salvation that we greatly rejoice. Don't miss that. That we rejoice as a result of our salvation. Now, I don't know how you sang this morning. Right? I I was focused up here. I'm not even going to ask Brian to say what he experienced from his end looking out there. But what I would say is this. If you are born again, if you are a saved believer, there should be joy flowing out of you every moment you have opportunity. Like it should just be a part of who you are because your heart has been radically changed by the grace of God. And when we come in to a place like this and we're holding on to the troubles and and, and situations that weigh us down and all the things that that aren't sin, okay? Like that needs to be dealt with in a different way. But like when when the world is crushing around us and and, and we're thinking, how are we going to make it? We walk in here and we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Like we're missing out on the far greater thing. What is the far greater thing? We're saved. We have been bought with a precious price. I may not understand why trials are permitted in my life, but I do know that there is a God who has already rescued me. And I can have joy. And I can, my heart can be lifted to a place that is far different than just being in this room. In this, you greatly rejoice. 
Our salvation, which includes our future inheritance and ultimate glorification, reminds and assures us of God's greater work in rescuing us from a world that is broken. That's why it's so wonderful that Peter, right from the beginning, takes his audience, who are aliens and strangers, people of exile, walking through this world as pilgrims, and he says, let me tell you the first thing you need to know. There's a future to come, and you're a part of it because of what Jesus has done. That It's so important that Peter did that. Because if we don't have the, the understanding of what is already true in our minds and hearts, then the trials and situations of life, when they press in, are going to crush us. They're, they're going to zap all the energy from us because we're going to be thinking, well, what end is there? What good is to come? And Peter settles it right from the beginning. And then he goes on, he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, even though now in this life, you're distressed by various trials. The trials in view here are those trials that distress us from the outside and result in undeserved suffering. If you're a believer of Jesus and you live in a fallen world, you're going to go through times and seasons of undeserved suffering. That's just what happens because we're not home yet. The kind of trials in view here are those things that come along to shake us and crush our faith. The times in life when because of our faith in Jesus, the world comes after us. Like you're in the crosshairs. Satan is not sitting idly by watching people who want to follow Jesus and say, oh, well. Like, here's the thing. Jesus already rendered him powerless in the cross. He's defeated. He is. And he knows it. But he he wants to take everyone down with him. And he's coming after us. And he's trying to stain the precious bride of Christ. By his attacks. This word distressed means to be grieved or to cause sorrow. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. But I want you to notice something about uh, a phrase in verse six. And you may want to underline it, highlight it, circle it, do something to remind you of it. Notice what Peter says about these trials. They are for a little while. They are not forever. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you just came through. I don't know what is coming down the road for you. But what I know is this. The trials that you will go through as a follower of Jesus will not last forever. They will not. They cannot. The assurance that we receive from the word of God is that in the bigger picture, they are just for a little while. Now, if you're married, this is not very good marriage advice. If you have a spouse that's going through a trial for you to come up to them and say, ah, buck up, dear. It's just for a little while. Like. If you hear that from your spouse, call me. We'll have a different kind of meeting. We'll talk about it. You know, those kinds of things. But like for us in the midst of trials, 
And I get it. When you're going through a trial, that's all you see because that's your experience in that moment. And it's just like, it's like putting a pair of glasses on, right? These are the trials that I'm putting. And I see the world through my trial. And it just seems overwhelming and there's no way out. And how am I going to get through it? And what's going to happen? And all the what questions that go with it. And what Peter says is, you need to understand, it's just for a moment in time. It's for a little while. It's not going to last forever. And God's going to get you through it. Even if it means you going home to be with him. Because here's the great thing. When we leave this earth to go be with him, there's no trials or tribulations in his presence. They're not there. It's just for a little while. And then Peter in verse 7 answers the question that his readers and us are trying to answer in the midst of trials. What purpose do they have then? Why does God permit them? Peter says in verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How will God use the trials of this life in our life? Well, here Peter says, that the trials that God permits to happen in your life are there so that God can refine your faith. God uses trials to refine your faith. And he uses the analogy of how gold which was refined. Now, gold was one of the most precious commodities in the world then as it is today. And if you're out mining for gold and you dig a hunk of it out of the ground, before you can really uh, understand its true value, that piece of gold needs to go through a refining process. And just like in the ancient world, as we do today, you take that hunk of earth that has gold in it, and what do you do with it? You heat it up intensely. Like I YouTube this, I was trying to find a video that could summarize this in a short fashion. I couldn't, everything was so long, but you know, later today, not right now, go on YouTube, look up how they refine a gold bar, right? They take all the, the earth with gold mixed in it. They throw it in an intense fire that I, I think it's like over 1100 degrees Celsius. Like it's hot, hot, hot. And they melt it down, this solid mass, into liquid. And what happens in that process is all the gold drops to the bottom and all of the impurities float to the top. And then they skim off the top. And then they pour it out. And then they test it. And if it still has impurities, it goes back into the fire. And it's refined again. And they keep doing this process so that it can come to its gold and its purest sense. It's the same thing in the Christian life, what God is doing in trials. And you're thinking, God, can you turn down the heat? And God is saying, no, you need the heat so that all the junk can get out of you so that your faith can be purified. That's the process and purpose of why these trials are permitted. 
The trials of this life purify and reveal our faith's true value and genuineness. And, and we see this from time to time, and we saw this in the Gospels, right? That you read in the Gospels times when Jesus would say some very hard things. And then we read, like in the next line, many that were with him departed from him. They couldn't take his hard words. They couldn't fully place themselves as people under his leadership. And you see this in the Christian life, right? People that have an experience with Jesus, they go through a trial, the heat is turned up, and they run for the hills. And they don't want anything to do with God's refining process. James chapter 1, which is printed in your bulletin on the left side on the top, affirms what Peter is saying about these trials. Consider it all joy, James says, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Peter says here, the testing of your faith produces its purity. James adds, it also gives you endurance to be able to continue to make it through. God purifies our faith with trials by helping us to realize the inadequacy of anything other than to trust Him in those situations. And trials do have a very real danger of robbing our joy if we don't remember what Peter says here. That they're only temporary and our future is certain. And even though tested by fire, may be found the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even though our faith is tested by fire, may our faith have a resolute confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is saying. So that at the revelation, like when Jesus returns, we're going to be so looking forward to singing his praises that we're not even, not even going to worry about where we came from because we have been so true to him in the midst of trials in this life that it doesn't change the way that we view his graciousness towards us now and into the future. And so as we go through trials, may we go through in such a way that we would be found to, to praise him to give him glory and to give him honor and long for his appearing. You may not understand why you have faced the trials that you have gone through, but those trials and the many more that will come are used by God to refine your faith so that you can give him more praise, more honor, more glory. And you might say, well, can I just tell him now I'll do it? I promise I'll do it. It doesn't work that way. God's going to continue to refine us, continue to draw our hearts closer to Him. And then Peter writes in verse 8, And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
And while there is a future anticipation of seeing the Lord and the joy that comes that is ours for all of eternity, Peter says that we can experience it even now. Even though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And even, and I'll just go on. And even now you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. Here Peter says it's our love for Jesus that sustains us. Now, did you ever think about what Peter is writing here? What he writes is that you haven't seen him, but you love him. And then he says, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Do you ever think about the absurdity of that statement from an outsider looking in? And, and that's kind of how the world looks at us, right? How can you say you love that Savior that you've never seen? That you can have the deepest love for one that you have never seen before. That Jesus causes the greatest response of the heart, even though he is not with you physically. That Jesus produces in his followers a joy inexpressible. Listen, only a risen Savior that has conquered the greatest enemies of sin and death. Only Jesus who disarmed the rulers of this age and stands victorious in glory. Only Jesus who due to his selfless humility can restore the heart that has been broken by sin so that his creation can enjoy him in a personal relationship. Only Jesus in the midst of life's greatest trials can draw the affections of the human heart to him so that you can praise him in the midst of the storm. Only Jesus can do that. Nothing else and no one else can grab your heart like Jesus Christ can. And if you're trying to put anyone else in the place that Jesus rightfully deserves in your life, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. Because that person will never be able to give you the full joy that can only be found by knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then Peter says in verse 9, we obtain as the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. The final outcome of our faith, although it's being tested by trials, is that we will obtain the salvation for our souls. The soul here refers to who we are. It's essentially who we are. It's what lives forever. It's what leaves this earth and goes to be with God in eternity. The essential part of who we are that will be with God forever. The trials of this life only refine our faith and show that our faith is genuine as our praise rises unending to our Savior who has given us the victory and secured our salvation because it's already been completed. So essentially, Peter is challenging us to remember that no matter what, no matter what you go through in this life, you can always find a reason to rejoice. Even when you suffer, there's a reason to rejoice. Even when you're being crushed, there's a reason to rejoice. That God will use those circumstances to refine your faith so that at the end of this life here, you receive your salvation completely in His presence. Church, 
You'll get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. Don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you'll get through this. As we transition to our communion service, I want to have the men that are going to help serve come forward. Um, very simply, I, as I was preparing this week, it, it was very obvious uh, the application of, of what we're discussing this morning in First Peter and the place that trials have in our life and, and how we can find our way um, to, to see the purpose of Jesus in the midst of celebrating his table. And it's this simple truth. Jesus endured the greatest suffering, going through the most unfair trial so that we could be with him forever. This table is a reminder that our Savior went through the most cruel, unusual suffering. And, and he didn't deserve it at all. But he did it. He endured it. He went through it so that we could be with him. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, says it this way. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. And so let's just stop right there. Right as we consider this table and the purpose of Jesus and what he went through, the author of Hebrews says, as we consider him who endured, what do we need to do? Take off the things in our lives that trap us up, that slow us down. Right? And so what do we do in communion as, before we take the elements? We examine our hearts. God, what's inside of us that is displeasing to you? God, help me through the Holy Spirit to be aware of the things that I do, the things that I think, and the things that I say that break your heart. And help me confess that to you so that my heart is ready to receive what you have provided in Jesus Christ. Cast all that off. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured it. Jesus suffered, endured the suffering, and saw beyond the suffering of that moment so that he could be with you despising the shame and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart church if anything this table reminds us not only did Jesus endure suffering for the joy that was set before him but that Jesus also wants us to use this table as a reminder, as an example for us that you can go through trials and hardships and understand there's a greater purpose for it because Jesus was able to endure through it so that we could be with him. I'm not equating what you go through at the same level as what Jesus went through, but what I am saying is this. Communion reminds us that suffering is a part of life as a child of God. And God will make sense of it. He'll help you through it. And you'll be glorified as a result of it. 
just as we are glorified through the suffering of our Savior. And so let's pray as we prepare our hearts.